You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. All right, everybody, uh, welcome back to the Grace Saves All podcast. I'm very excited to welcome to the podcast today a scholar whose work I have followed for some time now. I first became aware of Dr. Putt through her really great book, in my opinion, published in 2010, entitled Raising Hell, Rethinking Everything You've Been Taught About God's Wrath and Judgment. That book takes the reader on a very interesting journey along with Dr. Putt as she interacts with very sincere students working through the issues of hell and judgment in her classes. Dr. Putt has also written on her understanding of the atonement and executing God, rethinking everything you've been taught about salvation and the cross. Her most recent work is entitled A Nonviolent Theology of Love, Peacefully Confessing the Apostles' Creed. Dr. Putt is Professor of Theology and Religion at Messiah University in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. She received her PhD in 2006 from Southern Methodist University. Prior to that, her MA in 1999 from Texas Christian University at Bright Divinity School. And prior to that, her BA in 1997 from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So welcome Dr. Put to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you for having me and call me Sharon. (laughs) Okay, Sharon, okay. (laughs) Well, Sharon, um, I think maybe the best place to start, you have such an interesting, unexpected uh, journey. So why don't we just start at the beginning, and how would you describe your spiritual experience growing up? Growing up, I was, um, my mother was a Christian. I was in church when I was very young and then stopped going altogether by fifth grade. We moved away. And so I really didn't have much of a spiritual experience. I lived like any teenager in upstate New York would who was into the wildlife. Um, So it wasn't until about 26 years old Mm. when I had my first child, he was about nine months old, that I finally um, became a Christian, received Jesus as savior and started on this spiritual journey as an adult. Mm-hmm. So now, this uh, this this kind of church that you joined when you were 26, what was that like? That was a Southern Baptist church, even though I was in New York. We moved later on, shortly after that, to uh, Florida, where I was a member of a really large Southern Baptist church. And again, in Texas, when we lived there, same thing. Um, and so began reading the Bible a lot, um, teaching women's Bible studies and doing women's retreats. Um, very, very, very conservative, I'd say even fundamentalist type of belief system that I cut mm-hmm. my teeth on in these churches. And it wasn't until I went to school after all my kids, I have four boys. Once they were all in school, I went back to school at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary just to take some classes to enhance my teaching. But I ended mm-hmm. up getting what amounted to my undergrad there um, in my late 30s. And just the bug bit me and I had to keep going on to master's and PhD and doing what I'm doing today. Now, at Southwestern, 
Baptist Seminary. I went to Bright Divinity School, and you ultimately went to Bright Divinity School for a while too. Uh, but Southwestern strikes me—I mean, strikes me as a pretty conservative environment. <laughs> but but apparently, even there, you began to realize that your thinking was enlarging. I was at Southwestern in the good old days before it became a fundamentalist Baptist institution. I was one of the last people out um, before it, I say fell to the fundamentalists, but I was there when the professors were good. They were good thinkers, good writers, and I learned from them. And they are the ones that actually um, motivated me to start asking questions about God, about atonement, about hell, that eventually led me to doing the work that I do now. That's interesting. And then, then you went from Southwestern, you went to Bright Divinity School at TCU for a while. For master's, yes. Yeah. Okay. And, um, that just added to the questions I already had. Um, and I, I got some basics there. It, it was strange because I went from Southwestern, which was an extremely conservative school, even though it was before it fell to the fundamentalists that I was there. Right. And then I went to Bright Divinity School, as you know, was probably the other end of the spectrum, farther, right. much farther to the left. Um, and so that opened my mind. It opened my mind to some of the um, issues that Southern Baptists were very closed to. Yeah. And, and, and really got me thinking even more about um, universe, Christian universalism. Um, what did the atonement mean? Is there what does hell look like in view of a loving and gracious God? Um, and then of course, you know, getting a PhD at SMU. Yeah. Then you went on to all that together. Right. And your PhD in SMU, what was, how was that organized? That was SMU is the perfect medium, um, the perfect middle between Southwestern hmm. and um, Bright Divinity School for me at least. Okay. And it was there, of course, I wrote my dissertation on the atonement. And so it was there that I really began to pull together um, some of the thoughts that I had been having and the studying I had been doing um, throughout the undergrad and the master's work. And I had some really great mentors there. Although my dissertation supervisor, I'd have to admit, disagreed completely with what I was doing. Um, he was a Thomistic Catholic um, oh, okay. So kind of like a Catholic Calvinist in a way. <laughs> kind of. Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that Thomism has more of that determined, you know, everything's sort of predetermined and there's certain people that are chosen that will be saved and others that won't. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a classical theistic tradition. And uh -huh. although at the same time, he's, he was, he's one of the smartest people I've ever known. Uh, we would study Schleiermacher, and I'm reading in English, and he's reading in the German. You know, we'd be yeah. reading Thomas Aquinas, and he'd be reading it from the Latin, and I'd be using an English translation. I mean, it's just it's interesting. It's interesting how paradigms. Uh, what I've discovered is that that education is wonderful and it's very important, but in a way, as long as you're looking through a certain paradigm, you tend to see. <laughs> you tend to see through a certain paradigm. That's and right. as I understand your work, one of the things that really um, started moving your thinking in the direction of a Christian universalism was your understanding of how immense the atonement was. That Yes, the, effective, the effectiveness of the atonement, 
and thinking about what does it mean if God is love and mm-hmm. growing, you know, not growing up, but, but being introduced immediately upon becoming a Christian into the Southern Baptist tradition, they don't have any problem with God needing to punish somebody before God can forgive. God being violent is okay with them. In fact, they kind of enjoy that part of their theology um, in some respects. But all of that always bothered me. If God is love and God is all powerful and Jesus came to die for all humanity, then how come so many people are going to burn in hell according to their theology? Mm-hmm. And so none of that made sense to me. Um, and, and I had to go about the process of rethinking. Well, one of the things that, that kind of helped me in my thinking was when I realized that mostly all of our Western theology really kind of goes back to an Augustinian, kind of an Augustinian formula where you've got original sin and either oh. eternal, eternal life or eternal torment. Yeah. And so those were givens. Mm-hmm. You got you got the original sin, total you know, people are totally depraved, they're born sinful and unworthy. And then some of them end up in hell forever. And then the question is, well, why do they why does that happen? And so people right. work out very various atonement theories or theories about grace. And so what happened was all of that the, when the Protestant Reformation came along, that that basic background of original sin and eternal hell and eternal torment, they didn't they didn't rethink that. They rethought mm-hmm. other things, right. but they just kind of accepted that paradigm as a given. They and did. so when I when I discovered that there was an early period in the church for the first several centuries where that paradigm did not exist, mm-hmm. and there were early church fathers who had quite optimistic theology and who believed that God would ultimately be all in all. That was just to learn the history of all of that was very yeah. freeing for me. Very freeing, especially when you know some of these earlier guys um, really did hold to a form of Christian universalism and Origen, especially who even believed that um, Satan would be redeemed one day. Now I like that. Now some people don't want the, the devil to be redeemed, but I do. Um, boy, that's a powerful God who can redeem. Well, the, I've been recently, uh, John Bear has a new translation mm-hmm. of Origins on First Principles. Oh, yeah. And I've, been, and I've been reading that and preparing for an interview with him. And so I've been reading Origin a lot lately. And Origin believed that the Father and the Son and the Spirit were the only, tr- they were truly eternal. Yeah. And then that in creation, then God uh, creates the aeons and, and all things mm-hmm. come into, all things come into being through Christ into right. the aeons, in, 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 into the into time and these ages. Yeah. And then at the end, they will all, uh, all things will be, God will be all in all. So right. Origen sort of thought of his theology, okay, I know in the end, God will be all in all. And I know that all things have come into being through Christ. Therefore, anything that is a thing is a thing that will be restored. So the right. if the question is, is Satan a thing? Some say evil isn't a thing. It's a no right. thing. Right. So if, if it's a no thing, then it can't be restored. But if it's a thing, it's got to be it, restored. Then it got to be restored. So then you sort of get into this metaphysical question is, is evil, can, can evil, is, is evil something that exists or is evil something that doesn't exist, that has no existence? And, the, right. and that really kind of gets into the question about fire, which I appreciated in your book that, you know, you tend to think about when I was 
growing up. I didn't grow up going to church, so I heard some hellfire preaching. But when I heard it, it seemed like the purpose of hell was just to inf- the purpose of hell was to throw people in fire so that they would they would suffer and feel pain for all right. of eternity. Um, but uh, you've done good work in researching how fire ha- could have a purifying or restorative purpose. Could you tell yeah. us something about that? Yeah, when I started out thinking about fire, I wanted to. There were there were a few things that I wanted to think about before I wrote Raising Hell, and one of those was justice and what is God's mm-hmm. justice? Is it retributive, like I've always been taught? Of course, the answer is no. Um, and then fire. What does it mean that people will be burned in a in the fire? And so I looked up all of the words in Scripture in the Greek or Hebrew that we translate fire, and then in another section justice but for fire and i started with the burning bush and i i thought why when fire as it's connected to god why doesn't the burning bush why doesn't it burn up that was a a question i had which i'm sure is answered in the midrash right but i didn't go to the midrashic material for that i wanted to find out through scriptures in our scriptures so every place i looked about fire that's connected to god God's fire burns up everything that's wicked and leaves nothing in its place behind, but it doesn't burn up what's righteous. It leaves it more righteous. So, of course, mm-hmm. the burning bush, there was nothing wicked about a burning bush. I thought, okay, that that's why it didn't burn up. But, you know, I'm thinking metaphorically, right? So, right. But you see, God's people walk through the fire and they will not be burned. They go through the flames, they'll not be scorched. You read about that in scripture. And then you, so you know that the fire connected to God burns up wickedness and leaves what's righteous behind, you know, there, still there. Right. So then you go into second, uh, first Corinthians chapter three, where you see there, no one lays a foundation except the foundation that's laid by Jesus Christ. You can mm-hmm. lay on that foundation uh, upon it with wood, hay or straw or gold, silver and precious stones. And the day will show it if, if if the work is burnt up that you lay upon this foundation, which would be the wood, hay, and stubble, mm-hmm. then that person will suffer loss. If it's not burned up, which would be the gold, silver, precious stones, then that person would receive a reward. But even the person who suffers loss will be saved, yet so as through fire. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then we are told in Hebrews, God is an all-consuming fire. Right. And so to me, the fire is a redemptive, purifying fire, which is just Eastern Orthodox theology, actually. Um, right. That was another thing yeah. to find out for me was that yeah. there was an Eastern Orthodox church, which which hadn't that, that, that in Western Christianity, salvation was defined as being saved from this eternal con- the fires of eternal conscious torment. Yeah. Whereas in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they define salvation more as union with God. That's right. So the reason that we so the reason that we believe and that we come in in, and that we want to believe right now is so that we can experience union with God right now. And so it's a much more it's much more positive focus. Mm -hmm. It is. My theology is largely Eastern Orthodox theology and the the purifying fire um, is is actually historically um, right in line with our our tradition, um, these mm-hmm. early thinkers. And I tell a story in Raising Hell about Otto. I don't know if you want me to tell that story. Yeah, that, that, I think that's that's interesting because the story of Otto is is interesting in 
in kind of how you develop that character and why, just how all of that happened. Yeah. So you want me to tell the <laughs> Yeah, tell go ahead and tell the story of Otto and how so you came Otto, up with him. And Yeah. Otto is this extremely, I had to think of a good name. I had some names, but they were, the publisher said, no, you can't use that as too political. Anyway, Otto is the um, most evil person you can think of, right? And most people, mm -hmm. if you say, who's the most evil person you can think of, they automatically say Hitler. Right. But I didn't want to use Hitler. That's too, everybody uses Hitler. So Otto, I made up a name. And I thought I'd call him Otto Luck, Otto Luck, you know, Otto Luck. But I, right. that, that was too corny. So anyway, Otto, most evil person you can think of. And he's on his deathbed. And he knows that he's just totally condemned. He's going to go burn in hell forever. He hates God. He's angry at God. He has no remorse at all. Um, just this belligerence. Um, and hate that he feels toward this God that he knows is going to condemn him to burn in eternal torment. And he dies and he's in this fire and he's in the fire as he's walking closer to the source of the fire and the fire is burning him. And, and he all of a sudden realizes that it's not a fire of condemnation. It's a fire of burning, passionate love. And as he walks more and more through the fire, as the wickedness is being burnt off more and more, he's just totally undone by this unorthodox approach to mm -hmm. his sin and the life that he led. And, and the farther he goes, the more that's burnt off, he is just completely remorseful, totally undone, um, inconsolably grief stricken over the amount of horrors and the things that he's done to people over the, the time that he lived. And he comes before God and he's on his face just completely and totally grief stricken and inconsolable about who he was when he lived his life. Mm -hmm. And he realized that even in spite of that, that he's confronted with this incredible, inexpressible love. And God says to him, or Jesus does, you now stand before me righteous, will you enter my kingdom? And if a person is, is fully righteous, what's that answer going to be? I still have to hold the freedom. I have to hold the human choice. I can't do the deterministic thing. That's too Calvinist for me. And so, uh -huh. um, of course, a fully righteous person is going to make the choice, yes, I will enter your kingdom. And then somebody said to me, what about the victims? And um, you have to allow for some kind of indication with the victims. And so... In the rest of the story, of course, it's all metaphor, happens in an instant. It's not like a purgatory that lasts a long time, but it's fast. Uh -huh. But he looks over and sees his victims, and Jesus makes him go and put his hands on the hearts of the victims, and he feels their pain, and he knows what he's caused them, and he's remorseful, and he's sorry, and he's just totally um, in grief over that. But then the victims put their hand on his heart, and they, they realize what he went through as a young child, maybe being abused or mocked or the horrors that, that he saw or imagined in his own childhood. And they could have some sort of understanding about what made him the person that he was. And so there's reconciliation between Otto and his victims. There's reconciliation between Otto and God. And he enters the kingdom um, fully redeemed, reconciled with all parties involved. And I, if I, that find, 
I finally, I finally found it. I think that I, that I thought that I could, um, that, that God could preserve free will mm-hmm. and, and redeem everybody. And that, right. that, that what happens there with when a will is enslaved in a powerful delusion, right? then it, it acts against its own, its own best interest. But That's when right. that is taken away and, and, and the soul understands itself clearly and understands who God is and understands right. the whole situation, then, then freely, uh, has a you know moves in the direction of that the child will move has being mm-hmm. you know is, is created in the image of God and ultimately will recognize that right. and move in that direction. Now in your book, Otto, I think, uh, decides to go into the flames though. In raising hell, no, he goes. Uh, the, he enters the kingdom. Oh, he does enter the kingdom. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've forgotten about because that. Because I but think there everybody will. Um, one of your questions is um, about freedom. You had given me a list of questions. Yeah, about yeah. And one of them was freedom. about freedom. And I thought about that a little bit because we usually think of freedom as the freedom to do whatever we want. But like mm-hmm. you were saying, right, once we are made righteous or once we even become Christians, but once we're made righteous, the freedom that we have that's scriptural is the freedom not to sin, it's not the freedom to sin. It's the freedom not to sin. And so we have been made free in Christ. We're no longer slaves to sin. And so right. anybody to be free means we're no longer compelled or driven or under that slavery to sin. And we're free to choose the way of God. And so a person standing before God, totally righteous, would be free to make that choice. Okay. Um, well, in your in, when you were, wrote raising hell you i think you had you had personally come to the point of understanding yourself as a christian universalist but you didn't you weren't really that wasn't your point to really make that clear in the book at that time but since that time you've become more comfortable identifying that way there's a reason for that yes i was concerned um in raising hell i was still leaving the question open yeah Um, when really for me, I had finally decided I was a Christian universalist. It took me a while because of the deterministic issue. I really didn't want there to be determinism at the end that everybody will be saved whether they want to or not. I wanted everybody to choose that and found a way right. to do that the same way you did. And um, and I, I wasn't as um, vocal about being a Christian universalist because I wasn't sure how would it affect my job, just to be honest. Um, so you're in, uh, well, and, and that's one of the things that, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you, how has, as you, since you've been, been more open, I think I listened to a podcast that you did in 2016 and you were being pretty open then about yeah. it. So if you've been, you've been open for a while about yeah. this now and sort of what, what have been the, have, have there been pros and cons or has it, what's that experience it's, been like for you? Well, I, one of the things that people misunderstand about Christian universalism is they mix up universalism with Christian universalism. That's a good point. And so when I'm teaching my students, I make sure, even with their language in class or in their papers, they're talking about Christian universalism. I'm not a universalist. I'm a Christian universalist. And so all people are saved through Jesus Christ. And there's different ways to do that, right, to think mm-hmm. about Jesus. But... Um, and, and so once that's made clear, it's a little bit 
uh, more easily handled. Now, um, I have people that write to me and say, thank you. You've given God back to me. You've let me find the way back. I've um, just all kinds of really nice emails and letters. And, but then mm-hmm. I've gotten letters that are kind of threatening. Um, one guy was in jail for killing his wife with a hatchet and he sent me all this horrible stuff. And I thought, I'm glad he sent it to school so that I, he didn't know my home address. So there's mm-hmm. been some weird stuff that's, that's happened as well. But for the most part, um, people are, are, are pretty, thankful that they've found a way back into their faith. Yeah, I think that there's a, a so as I think about all of this, uh, I really was moving towards Christian universalism around 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. And your book, Raising Hell, came out in 2010. And I was one of the books that I read. Uh, and then Rob Bell's book came out in 2011. So that's been 10 years since The Love Wins uh, yeah. happened. And in the and in the ten years since then, I think there's been a lot. Uh, to me, there's been a growth in understanding mm-hmm. uh, that there is a form of Christian universalism, which is in line with teaching of early church fathers, which takes the Bible yeah. seriously, which says that judgment is real, yeah. uh, but finally says that the grace of God, the 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 victory achieved in the atonement, and the purpose of God are all aligned, so that God yeah. would finally be all in all. And so, right. and so there is a way that we can do Christian theology and, and see the ultimate salvation of all and still take everything, uh, and still take everything seriously. Yeah. And when you think about that, I mean, think about the different ways of thinking. You know, when I was first a Christian, I was horrified that people were going to be in hell and I was spreading the, you know, telling people about Jesus using evangelistic evangelism explosion techniques, which were not very person friendly, I, I'm afraid. Um, so when you think about God, who is love, who's supposed to be all powerful and all loving, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, but then still sends his son to die for the sins of all humanity, all creation, you know, but then still most of the people who ever lived in the whole world are going to end up burning in hell. Or a God who is powerful enough, an atonement that's effective enough, a God who's loving enough to redeem all of humanity, all of creation, which brings more glory to God. If every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, which one of those scenarios gives you a more powerful God, a more effective atonement, and more glory to God, yeah. the one we're supposed to bring glory to. To me, it's a no-brainer. I don't see how people can't see that. Um, well, in in our, I'm a minister in the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and so the the focus of our churches is that we're being disciples, we're following Jesus. So, yeah. what I would tell people is, you know, here at First Christian Church, we're all following Jesus, reading the Bible to the best of our understanding, and we're not being judgmental of each other. And that we each have our own ways of putting our theology together. And then, you know, in conversations with people, I would say, for instance, uh, the way I put my theology together, and then I would talk about, I think that God is a a loving parent to all who has covered the sin of all in Christ and who will ultimately be all in all and who's sovereign and as a God of perfect love. And that's the way I put my theology together in line with early church fathers. And here's the way I do that, that there were, 
I started having people coming to the church and they were saying to me, I never knew this was a possibility. I didn't, I didn't know this. And this has revolutionized my whole spiritual life. I'm happy now. I'm going to church. I have a Sunday school class. And as a matter of fact, I can't believe this, but I'm going around and I'm telling people that maybe God is better than we thought God was in that maybe there, there was this tradition, this hellfire tradition that got going, but that's a tradition. That's not the only way of looking at it. There's a better yeah. way of looking at God that, that is in line with the Bible right? and and, and does talk about the power of grace and mm-hmm. Christ, uh, what Christ did on the cross for the whole world. And, right. the, and they were surprised that they were talking to, uh, they became evangelistic once they had a true, they mm-hmm. had good news. Suddenly they had good news that was so good. Yeah. They couldn't help but sharing it with people. Yeah, and that's, I tell my students, I'll lay out both scenarios. You know, I give them all different views, and then they choose their own, and they write about it at the end of the semester. And I tell them, you know, whatever view you hold, you've got tradition to back you up. You can always find scripture to back it up. Their concern is Christian universalism isn't scriptural. So I've got this two-page document, single-spaced, of all the scripture, the verses in the Bible that support a Christian universalistic view. And they, too, will say, "I I never knew that. I never read them that way. I had no idea that this was a viable option, um, but they're—I'm not saying that they become Christian universalists at the end of a semester, but at mm-hmm. least it's on their radar and they're thinking about it, which is how everybody starts. It's always a journey, right? Um, and what I've thought, but, and one of the things that's important about this podcast and scholars such as yourself is just by us having these conversations, somebody at least can get to the point to say, you know what, I don't know if I believe in Christian Christian universalism. There's some things that I don't know that I go along with, but I can at least understand now that that's a way of being Christian. And right. so then if they run into somebody who says, yeah, I mean, I would be a Christian, but in order to be a Christian, I have to believe in a God who puts at least some people in hell forever, and I can't do that. Then they can say, mm-hmm. well, actually... Uh, you, you don't have to believe that in order to be Christian. There is this thing, Christian universalist yeah. path. I'm not. I, that's not my path, but that mm-hmm. is a path that I, I would hate for you to 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 not even know about that path. Mm-hmm. And so, whether people embrace it or not, at least if they know about it and they can recognize that it is a form, a legitimate form of Christian spirituality, that would be taking a major step forward. It would be, yeah, that's for sure. Um, and it's. It's a, I guess it's a major, in my mind, it's a major step forward. And a lot of people, it's a major step backwards and that's fine. Um, But one of the things that students always ask me and other people too, when I'm talking to them, whether I'm talking in churches or whatever about the stuff that I write or believe, they always say, if, if everyone's saved and it doesn't matter then because everyone's going to be saved at the end, why become a Christian and have to live a certain way? And Mm -hmm. to me that I don't tell them this, but I'm, you know, I'm thinking that is so sad that we have to ask that question as Christians because salvation is for today. We're told over and over in the Bible, especially in Mark and the book of Hebrews, that salvation is for today. It's for, for us now to be invited into the Trinitarian dance, I call it, because that's the social trinity, which is the Eastern Orthodox view, to be partners with God and transforming the world for God's glory. That's why we're saved. Eternal life, because we have the eternal life of Christ within us, is what gives us our eternal life. That's a great side benefit, right? But the real Mm -hmm. benefit is, and the real privilege is the fact that God wants us to work with God 
in recreating souls, re, re, you know, making them new birth, re, recreating right. souls from, you know, dead to alive, from spiritually ignorant to spiritually enlightened, to transform the world so that we get rid of evil by redeeming it um, and reconciling people. And that's what salvation is about. And yeah, there's a present that way. Yeah. The, the, the gospel is, is only the good news that, that you can escape hell and go to heaven after you die. That Great marketing strategy, men. right? Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> but what I, what I began to be able to say to people was uh, Jesus announced his gospel, the good news that the kingdom of God was at hand. And he described a fullness of life mm-hmm. that could be lived in the midst of this world uh, right yeah. now. And if you read his Sermon on the Mount, he he tells about how we can live, how we can live in that world. And uh, I, I had a chance to do an extended series of sermons in the in I, I sort of I, I slow cooked all of us in our church in the Sermon on the Mount for a couple of years. <laughs> And so that was a really wonderful, immersive experience. But mm-hmm. what came to me out of that was how much that, you know, that that Jesus comes into this violent, oppressive world and he says, good news, the kingdom of God is here. And everybody looks around and says, you know, what do you mean? Yeah. How can it be here? And he says, well, let me show you. And he begins to demonstrate acts of compassion and mercy and healing yeah. and love. And he says, as a matter of fact, you don't even have to participate in the in the violence of this world you don't have to hate people. You don't have to be, un- you can forgive people. As a matter of fact, you can love your enemies. You can do good to people who persecute you. You, you don't have to participate in the violence of this world. And so, uh, and then what he does is he ends up going to the cross and he submits to the violence of the world. But what, what he does is he does it blessing those people. He, he actually yeah. says, love your enemies like you be your father in heaven but that you be children of your father in heaven. Then he goes to the cross, does love his enemies as they are crucifying. Uh, you know, I think the cross would be a little bit different if Jesus was on the cross condemning the people that were crucifying him, but he forgives them and he actually prays for their forgiveness. And I, I think you talk a little bit about, that's a pretty powerful thing. If you think that Jesus prayed for the forgiveness of those who do not know what they're doing from the cross. Well, and that's a real meaningful saying to me because he's the representative of, of all humanity. Uh, we're told mm-hmm. in Romans chapter five, and as the representative of all humanity, who's hanging from a cross, being crucified, one of thousands and thousands that were crucified in that day and age. But he says from the cross, "Father, forgive them," and that them. I think represents all humanity. They don't know what they're doing. And out of our spiritual ignorance, we don't know what we're doing. And when Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He's praying for God to forgive the entire human race of their sin. And I think that that's a prayer God answered. If if God answers, we're told in James, if God answers the prayer of a righteous person, and Jesus is fully righteous, of course, um, that's a prayer God would answer. And so um, which is another support for Christian universalism, right? Mm-hmm. God's forgiving well, one of the things, I remember when, you know, when I was younger and I was being uh, evangelized or witnessed to, sometimes people would quote uh, some passages from Romans to me. Yeah. Um, uh, but then later on in life, I began to look at Romans and 
I begin to realize that, yes, that Paul does say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he goes on the fifth chapter of Romans to talk about how in Adam uh, there's been this falling away. But right. in Christ now there's been something greater has come, something uh, where there, there's unrighteousness that gets that happens because of of Adam. Now there's this righteousness mm-hmm. that's coming uh, in, in Christ and that we're sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And then you keep reading in Romans, and the argument kind of goes all kinds of different places. But then you get to Romans eleven thirty two, where he sums up his argument, saying, "For God has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy upon all." Then there's this doxology, and then he says, "Therefore, let us live this way." I've sometimes wondered what would have happened if Romans would have ended with Romans eleven thirty three, with the final, with Paul's final statement. God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy and all, and then the doxology, and then it had ended right there. Yeah. It would have been, it, people would have been able to identify better what his argument was right. all the way through there. So that was just interesting how Romans went from being this book that that people used with me to try to show me that I was going to go to hell forever if I didn't accept Jesus as my Savior. And then it changed once I began to see Paul's whole, whole argument and how it's working right. out there. Yeah, and if you look at the logic of Romans chapter 5, through the first Adam, death came in condemnation and therefore death to all human beings. Through mm-hmm. the second Adam, Jesus, righteousness comes to all human beings. Then logically, if death comes to all, then righteousness comes to all. And so you have to think that that's really what happens, that if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God through Adam, then all are righteous and are saved through Christ. Yeah, that was just, uh, that was extremely powerful. And there's other passages in the New Testament that you focus on uh, in your work that talk about how even the early Christian community was, was saying, he's not just our savior. He's a savior. He's the savior of all. Could you talk mm-hmm. about that a little bit? Well, he's the savior of all in that, Jesus, see my see that you every theory of atonement has a one little hook that is the salvific moment, right? For satisfaction okay. theory, the the hook is Jesus pays the satisfaction and is so that we don't have to be punished. In penal substitution, the hook is Jesus is punished for our sin, and that's what saves us. And so, for me. Um, my theory of atonement is more Romans five recapitulation. And it's an incarnational theology because now we live the life of Christ since it's the life of Christ that has redeemed us and has been given to us. But at the same time, for me, the hook for salvation is that prayer from the cross, father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And God did. Mm-hmm. And, and in that, in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he actually redid the whole human condition, um, the human condition that was crusted over and 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 yeah. brought down by by the first human being was redone and done over the right way by Jesus Christ, and that's what He's given to us. Yeah, and there was in the early and there's indications in the New Testament that the early Christian community was saying things like He, he didn't just die for our He. He's the savior, especially for those who believe it. He's the savior of the, he's the savior. He didn't just die for our sins. He atoned for the sins of the whole 
the whole world. So they had a consciousness that it wasn't that isn't Jesus wonderful. Look what he did for us. Yeah. But it's isn't Jesus wonderful. Look for what he has done for every look for what he has done for for everyone. Yeah, and you see that in First Timothy, where um, it says, we have hoped in the living God, who is the savior of all human beings, especially of those who have faith. So there's this idea that, that even in scripture, that Jesus has, uh, his death is salvific for all human beings of mm -hmm. every walk of life, every religious tradition. And I know there's some issues with that, that I, you know, we can deal with, but um and so it's not just the earlier Christians that were saying it. It's actually a scriptural principle as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. We can find that right in the, right in the pages of the, of the new Testament. Yeah. Are I like some other this, um, passages. There's some different translations. And one of them for John 12 is, and when I am lifted from the earth, I will drag everyone to me. I love that. Yeah, Helcuo, that that's a strong word there. Yeah, it is. Um, so there's a lot of, I think, support for a Christian universalist view. And um, it, it one of the things that one of the things that I think, you know, we talk about the, the importance of why I think Christian universalism is important. There's so many reasons. But one of the things that that really bothers me, and I've seen this, I think, building more lately, is how violent Christians can become. Yeah. And, and, and this is this is a, a lot of your work, too, that we tend to imitate the God of our understanding. And if the right. God of our understanding is violent and practices punitive things and has to has to punish in order, you know, and is retributive, then we're going to be and, and torments people forever in the fires of hell. If that's the kind of God that we have, then we're more likely to imitate that kind of violent behavior, even though, you know, you've got the sermon of the sermon on the Mount staring you in the face, right. Saying not to do that. Somehow the hellfire doctrine and the re retribution and, uh, all of the energy that gets going with that overwhelms, overwhelms all that and ends up making Christianity oftentimes into a very violent religion. Historically, it's been a terribly violent religion, um, with crusades and inquisitions and um, the spiritual violence that's been done to people um, throughout history. And a lot of that is because of some of these doctrines. And that's what really uh, started me on the work that I do is if we can change people's image of God from violence to loving and peaceful, then maybe we can change the world into a less violent place because so much of the violence that's been done historically has been done by Christians. And um, so if we can change that image of God, well, how do you do that? Well, you can start by trying to get into some of these fondly held doctrines like hell and atonement, where God traditionally, at least through one part of the Western part of the tradition, has mm -hmm. been extremely violent because hell is violent. The atonement, God is violent in the atonement in the Western viewpoints. If we can change some of those doctrines, or at least the way people think about them, maybe we can begin to change people's perceptions of who God is and how God behaves so that we can imitate a God that's nonviolent rather than a God that's violent. And yeah, so, that you're, to me, that, that really, that to me is kind of a, 
a theme that runs through all of your work. And how can we how can we begin to understand the God who comes, whose power mm-hmm. is the, the his power comes in weakness? Ironically, it's a very right. difficult thing. It's a very difficult thing that the, the, we're so used to the idea that power comes through dominance, right. that the idea that power can come through weakness and submission is so counterintuitive. Yeah. That it's it's even though they see Jesus humbling himself and submitting to death on the cross, I, th- I guess they think that that's not an example that Jesus is setting to follow. They think, oh, that's God punishing Jesus on the cross. Right. Um, but if we can see that the way of Jesus is actually the way that we are to live, too, in your work. So then rethinking the atonement, you rethink you rethought hell, you rethought the atonement and in, in the in the latest book that you've got really is sort of rethinking our whole theological um, foundations mm-hmm. uh, in a nonviolent kind of, in a nonviolent way. It is. It's using the Apostles' Creed. I just use as the structure for the order of the chapters and the structure of the book itself. But in, in raising hell, you're right. I, I, I wrestled with the doctrine of hell executing God, I wrestled with doctrines of atonement. And in this book, I started with actually with hermeneutics, um, a more a way of doing hermeneutics, and then go through the whole, the whole gamut from creation to, well, Trinity, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, creation, the church, humanity, sin, eschatology, all the way through all of these doctrines, and look at them both traditionally, mm-hmm. and how the West has usually looked at them, and then bring in now let's look at it this way um, and view God through a different lens, the lens of Jesus, and see what we come up with. And so it, you know, that lens, that lens of Jesus. I quoted you in my book uh, because I really loved that lens of Jesus statement. That that's what we're doing. That we're that that Jesus is the lens through whom we we read the Bible with Jesus colored glasses, I think is the way that you put it in your book. Yeah. And and you made a really from your Southern Baptist background, you you told a story of how the Southern Baptist Convention up to a certain date read the Bible through Jesus colored glasses and then kind of intentionally took those off. They took them uh, off. Yeah. That's when I decided I couldn't be Southern Baptist. I'm Baptist, but I can't be Southern Baptist anymore because of that. And that was. I think really, that was in two thousand and one that yeah, that happened. Yeah, two thousand, I think, or two thousand one. I can't remember, but they the Southern um, the Baptist Faith and um, oh shoot, Baptist Faith and Message. That's it. Yeah, I thought that was the newspaper. It's the Baptist Faith and Message always said that Jesus Christ is the criterion through whom we interpret Scripture. Uh huh. And they they totally took it out, um, and now they're the criterion through whom. We interpret scripture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that the, that's scary. The, I think that really it really changes things. So the the title of your new book is a nonviolent theology of love, peacefully confessing the Apostles' Creed. So it seems to me that you're really kind of working in the um, along in that in the time in the early centuries of the church when people were forming a Trinitarian theology. They were. I mean, this was just how they were living. It, they were nonviolent, and they and they, yeah. And um, so, what was that process like of trying to? Did you feel a kinship with those early, with those early Christians uh, putting those things together? Who were some of the, 
uh, when you were doing this, who were some of the, the sources of thought that you drew from, basically from the early church? And, and were there other scholars whose work that you, that you found really important when you were working on this book? Yeah, of course, you always go to like Clement of Alexandria, Gregory of Nyssa, um, some of the Eastern theologians, um, a little bit Origen. Um, I've, I read some of the work of um, Bishop Callisto, some of the Eastern Orthodox theologians. Callisto Swear? Uh, yes, Callisto Swear. And, and um, of course, J. Jenny Weaver has been very influential for me as well. But the early... I, I can't remember the author's name, but people often struggle with the divinity of Jesus. And I think that we can, for me, settles it when you think about what did the earliest Jewish people who became Christians, they weren't called Christians, they were Jews, right, who followed Jesus. They were right. Christ followers. And Judaism being extremely monotheistic mm -hmm. had no problems incorporating the thought of Jesus being divine into their worship and their hymns, their songs. The earliest church from even as early as 20 years after the death of Jesus, there was no question that Jesus was divine for these Jewish believers, which really says a lot to me about the divinity. So that was very influential for me um, to think about the divinity of, of Jesus, because there's so many arguments against it in, at least in Christian scholarship. And, um, yeah, that was interesting. When, when, yeah, when I went to Bright, when I went to Bright Divinity School, one of the things I learned was that there were some people who did Christian theology that the Trinitarian concept wasn't that important to them. They they mostly thought of Jesus as the one. He was like a prophet who came to announce the kingdom of God and to show the and to, and, and to show the way yeah. of life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, but Trinitarian, uh, whether there was a Trinity didn't seem to be that important in their theology. Yeah. And so one of the things that I appreciate about what you're doing is you're doing a Christian universalism, a Trinitarian Very Christian Trinitarian. universalism yeah. uh, that is in line with the, I think sort of the, the core of the experience of the earliest mm -hmm. of the earliest Christians. So in a way, I think what you're doing is very conservative it because is. you are, you are conserving, even though people might not think of you as a conservative. And, well, on my radar screen, you know, I, when I went to seminary, I found that there was a big, wide uh, array of different kinds of theology. Yeah. And, it, you know, that you're doing a Trinitarian theology in which all of creation is reconciled through Christ and that yeah. God will finally be all in all. And we will all gratefully acknowledge that. In yeah. my world, that that makes you kind of conservative. It does. I know. I get a bad rap for, for being a heretic or something, but I'm not. I mean, I'm really quite conservative. I guess it's my Christian universalism that makes people think I'm a flaming liberal. I think liberal is a really good word, by the way. And I don't mind being called a heretic because the word comes from heresis in, in the Greek, and it really means to bring a choice or to bring someone different decisions. And so I do that with my students. I'm bringing them choices, theological choices, that then they've got to use the evidence presented, scripture, tradition, and figure out what they believe for themselves. And so even heretic's a good word. Well, I, I always thought it was a little bit rich when, once I understood the history of Christianity, to have, and I started talking about Christian universalism, for somebody to insinuate that I was a heretic, and they themselves are a Protestant. Well, <laughs> 
the the you know Martin Luther was excommunicated. I mean, Protestantism is was considered in its day a heresy. Right. You know, so if you're going to throw that around, then you're you know uh, then you're heretical as well. So you got to be careful if you're uh, depending yeah. on how you uh, depending on how you depending on how you use this. Well, I've, I appreciate the, uh, the time that we've been able to uh, spend together. I want to respect uh, your time. I know that you are, my wife is a professor, and I know that you have lots of grading and lots of work that, that you could, that you could be, uh, that, that, that you could attend to. So I guess just, I want to kind of wrap things up by, are there, what are the ways, I know we've talked about your, about your books. Those are available, uh, Sharon Baker put, um, and they can just go, they can Google you, they can go to uh, Amazon, they can see your yeah. books. Are there, are there any other ways that you want people to know about your work or, or is that, is that a pretty um, good way of doing it? Yeah. Sharon Baker or Sharon Baker Putt on Amazon will do it. Or if you just Google me, my name, Sharon Baker or Sharon Putt or Sharon Baker Putt. I mean, I've, I got remarried in the mix of all these, the three books being published. So I, there's two different names out there, but um, there's a lot of different podcasts and things as well. And I always answer email. People email me quite a bit. So it might take me a while, um, but I always do answer. So that's another Okay, yeah, thing. that's how I got in touch with you because I just went to the Messiah College and you have your yeah. email there. Yeah. And I, I just sent you a, yeah. I just sent you an email. Well, you, you, I think you uh, are a wonderful voice. And I really applaud your, um, how you just, I mean, you went for it the, on the on the scholarship uh, yeah. side of it, and I know uh, um, from my wife having gone through a PhD program, that's that's a lot of work, it and uh, just that you're and in, in to me that you're that you are doing this. I love the one of the things I love about raising hell is how it 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 really takes you into the classroom mm-hmm. with the students, and you really feel, you, I mean, you really feel these students. They are really you know, working, you know, working through all this. So I thought it was interesting that you used, sometimes when I think of scholars, you know, to you you really used a lot of human experience in that book. I was critiqued for that. I mean, scholars, some scholars really didn't like that at all because it's more, I write more for normal people that will understand what I'm saying instead of academic writing. I think it's more important to reach the church and bridge that gap between church and academy. And so, Um, But I get critiqued for that as well. But one of the things that I always try to remember when I'm writing and teaching and talking to people is I know where I came from as a fundamentalist Christian. Mm -hmm. And I know how long it took me to get to where I am now theologically. And so a lot of my students are just in the beginning of their theological journey where they're just starting to think through these things. And so most of them believe in eternal conscious torment. Most of them believe in penal substitution. Most of them, you know, have these very, 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 well, I would even say Southern Baptist kinds of views. And I love working with them. I know where they're coming from. I never want to put them down for that. I never want to make them feel like they're believing something that's wrong. I want them to be presented with the choices and then, let God, the Spirit of God, lead them on their own theological journey to get to the place where they need to be. Um, and so I like to write that way as well. Yeah, I think that you, were, you know, in. sometimes, you know, if I recommend a book 
by a certain scholar, I can say, I'll have to say, this one is, this is going to be a tough read, you know, but, you know, it's worth it. Uh, Your books, you kind of, to me, when you get into them, you kind of, that's the Raising Hell book, especially, you kind of want to find out what happens to the students and how their stories turn out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So it's a very, it's a, it's a very human, Mm -hmm. to me, it's a very human, a very compassionate book. Yeah. And they're real people. So, yeah. Well, I'm so glad that that you have taken a little bit of time out of your busy uh, schedule uh, to speak with our our audience. And uh, I think you're well, helping people to feel like, yes, I can be a Christian universalist. There's a place for me within the historic uh, uh, faith of the church. And so Mm -hmm. I guess as we're wrapping up, do you just have, you know, any last words of encouragement for people that are that are working through all of these issues in their life right now? Um, just keep reading, read the Bible, read theologians on both sides. I mean, read people you disagree with and the people that you do agree with. But for me, one of the biggest things is prayer. I know that sounds trite, um, but I learned a lesson reading Anselm of Canterbury and his Why God Became Man. He begins the whole thing with this long, long prayer for God to give him wisdom and if he's wrong to show him what's right and sort of his disclaimer, right? That he's only human, but he's depending upon God. Um, now, of course, I don't know if God answered that prayer because I don't agree with Anselm, but that doesn't, mean, <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm right and he's wrong. It could be the opposite. But I think prayerfully thinking through and meditating on portions of scripture that speak to these issues you're struggling with are extremely important. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sharon, for your spiritual journey, for your sharing all of this with us. And uh, you've been a great blessing to many people, and you will continue to be so. Well, thanks. It's my pleasure. It's nice to meet you, too. Yes. Well, I look forward to maybe talking again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David, Or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.